So the reason I chose William Peace was because of their stellar game design program. It's very rare to find a game design program in the United States at all, let alone North Carolina. And this place seemed like the right place for me for where I wanted to go and the connections I could make uh, within the program. Turn your hobby into a career in one of the highest paid professions in the country with William Peace University's Simulation and Game Design Program. Master design, 3D modeling, and programming in a state-of-the-art space with the latest and most remarkable technologies available. Find out more at peace.edu. If you're just starting this podcast, go back and listen from episode one. It'll make a lot more sense. This podcast contains frank descriptions of physical violence and human remains. Listener discretion is advised. All right, so Amanda, tell us where we are. In December of 2019, my producer, Cliff Bumgarner, and I visited the spot where investigators say James Jordan was killed. So we are on the side of the road about 200 yards from where they say he pulled his car over. And this is just off of 95 or near 95. The lot is now empty, but there used to be a quality in here. And now it's just kind of this desolate spot. You can kind of see the footprint, the foundation. It's pavement, grass and weeds coming up in between the cracks in the pavement. Um, You can kind of see some of the bent, rusty rebar coming up. At trial, the prosecutors said James Jordan was napping in his Lexus near where we're standing now. They said this is where he was when Daniel Green and Larry Demery went to rob him. They say this is where Daniel Green shot him. This is a pretty sad place to die. It is that. It's, It's pretty depressing, actually. But this story the state's story presented at trial, it comes from one place, Larry Demery's testimony. And Daniel Green says that story, it just isn't true. Something happened here. Something happened here. And we're just not sure what. Yeah. And probably many, many people have been here walking these same steps, trying to figure it out. This episode, what Daniel Green says happened here all those years ago. From WREL Studios, this is Follow the Truth, the story of the James Jordan murder and the man who says he didn't do it. I'm Amanda Lamb. More great news for Cary commuters. With the new GoCarry app, you can track your bus live on the interactive map feature. Stay informed with the latest news and service updates right at your fingertips. Save your favorite locations and routes for quick and easy access, making your daily commute a breeze. Plus, with the GoCarry app, you can easily connect to GoCarry.org for even more resources and information. Best of all, the GoCarry app is absolutely free to download on the Apple and Google Play stores. GoCarry, where getting there is just a tap way. Are you ready to buy or sell your home? The Jim Allen Group is a nationally recognized and award-winning real estate team in the Triangle, dedicated to providing exceptional service to meet your needs. With the latest insights and expert market knowledge, they'll make your home buying and selling journey as smooth as possible. Don't wait. Head over to jimallen.com and start your next move today. That's jimallen.com. 
the Jim Allen Group, your partner in real estate. I've been talking to Daniel Green on and off for more than 10 years. I first wrote to him in 2009. He was in his mid-30s by then and had been incarcerated for 16 years. Daniel wrote back to me on yellow legal pad paper. He filled every inch of the page. He sometimes even wrote notes or small illustrations in the margins. At first, my goal in writing to Daniel was just to get an interview with him in prison. I got that first interview, and then another, and another. Daniel's letters reflected the way he speaks. Meandering, introspective, intelligent, sometimes explosive. He expounded not only on the Jordan case, but also about his life, sharing everything from glimpses of his childhood to what life is like in prison. Eventually, reading and responding to his long, detailed letters became too time-consuming. So he started calling. What? I never know when the calls are coming, oh, wow. and I never know what Daniel I'll get when they do. The quiet, scholarly guy who wants to talk about the law, or the frantic, exasperated Daniel who tells me about conspiracy theories. Sometimes he's just the friendly Daniel who talks about books, like the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ, or what music he likes. That includes Bon Jovi, by the way. I try to calm him down when he goes into one of his dark holes and can't seem to find a way out. Okay, that's good, Daniel. Hey, take a deep breath, man. Take a deep breath, okay? Okay. You take it easy, okay? okay? I'm good, I'm I'm good. Okay, okay. When Daniel calls from prison, we only have 15 minutes to talk and have to put in a credit card. It's not exactly conducive to a great interview. So if I really want to talk to him, there's only one thing to do. All right, we're rolling. Says we're 13 minutes away from the prison on this quiet country road. My producer, Cliff, and I went to speak with Daniel at the Tabor Correctional Institution in Tabor City, North Carolina. It's an enormous prison that pops up out of the countryside in the middle of vast rolling farmland. Oh, I think this is it. That's it. Wow, okay. It just comes up out of nowhere. It's a big concrete building, kind of exactly what you would think of a prison with the barbed wire all around it. After going through security, the guards bring us to a long, narrow room they use for training. It's full of conference tables, a big whiteboard on one wall. We wait a few minutes until they bring Daniel in. He isn't cuffed. He sits across from us at one of the long tables. The whole thing almost feels like a job interview, except for the five or six very fit guards who sit behind us with big canisters of pepper spray strapped to their legs. A clock ticks overhead, counting down the 90 minutes we have with Daniel. One of the first things Daniel and I clued in on when we started talking years ago is that we both grew up in the Philadelphia area. Different neighborhoods, only about 30 minutes away from each other, but worlds apart. You know, when I lived in Philadelphia, I lived in Southwest Philadelphia, and I lived in North Philly. So back then, um, I think that they've come in and gentrified uh, North Philly. Yeah. But back then, North Philly was 
war zone. A um, bunch of you know, burnt out crack houses, block after block after block. This is the environment Daniel grew up in. It was tough, but Daniel doesn't want sympathy. And he doesn't tell his story to try and excuse what he's done in his life. He tells it to explain how he used to think as a kid, why he made some of the decisions he did. Daniel's in his 40s now. He's graying, wears glasses. I've seen him age over the years. Time has added a little weight to his frame and a few fine lines to his face. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile this Daniel with the young, fit teenager who had a chiseled face full of bravado and photographs I've seen from the 90s before I knew him. He says he spends most of his time sitting alone in his cell block with a stack of law books and court documents going over his case. He's been in prison for over two and a half decades, but he says sometimes he still wonders how he got here. When I woke up this morning, it doesn't seem real. When I wake up and I'm in here, and everything comes back to you, why are you sitting here looking at a, a bunk on top of you? You know what I mean? In 1993, when Daniel Green was arrested and charged with murdering the father of his childhood idol, he says no one was more surprised than him. I remember begging my mother to buy six boxes of Wheaties, because there were six different Michael Jordan posters in them. It was just a sense of accomplishment that this, that this man is black and he's accomplishing these things. And because of him, like I said, you know, you can, it's something that you have to feel proud about. Daniel Green and Larry Demery have two very different accounts of what happened in the early morning hours of July 23rd, 1993. The biggest difference is that Daniel says he wasn't there when Jordan was killed. And this is probably the single most important issue in Daniel's case, because under North Carolina law, there's something called the felony murder rule. It basically says if you commit a violent crime like an armed robbery and someone dies, you're culpable for that murder, even if you didn't do the killing directly. So if Daniel was there on the side of the highway with Larry that night, it doesn't matter who pulled the trigger. He's also guilty of first-degree murder, plain and simple. This means the heart of Daniel's story is his alibi. So let's start there. Kay, how long have you known Daniel and his family? I've known and God. I could say a hundred year, but it's it's not quite a hundred year, but I've known since Daniel was maybe seven. This is Kay Hernandez. In 1993, Kay was best friends with Daniel's mother, Elizabeth Ann Green. Kay calls her Ann. Kay is also Daniel's godmother, but in many ways, she's like a second mom to Daniel, and he's like a son to her. Daniel was, he's always been genuine, upfront, and he's always said, yes, ma'am, and if it, was, if it was wrong, he'd say, no, ma'am. And once I had to go into hospital, and he stayed with me the whole time. Well, he really loved you. Really yeah. loves you. And I, mean. I, I do him. On July 23, 1993, the evening before James Jordan was murdered, Kay hosted a party at her trailer on Pine Log Road in Lumberton. It was a send-off for her daughter and son-in-law, who were moving to Puerto Rico. They had a cookout, 
It was a typical multi-generational event, adults socializing, teenagers hanging out, doing whatever teenagers do, kids running around. Kay says the party ran late, well into the early hours of July 23rd. By everyone's account, including their own, Daniel and Larry were at this party. Kay says Daniel spent most of the night with one of Kay's relatives, a girl he liked named Bobby Joe Marillo. I've got a cousin that's daughter. He was at the time, I guess you would say, liking, and he wanted to figure that everybody, I guess everybody to slip away and he would get to have some time with her. There's a photograph of Daniel and Bobby Joe from that night. Bobby Joe is sitting on Daniel's lap. Daniel's arms are around her, but he holds his hands wide open in an exaggerated gesture, as if to say there's nothing going on between them. He's got a kind of Cheshire cat grin, but behind the feigned innocence in this picture, it's pretty obvious something is going on between Daniel and Bobby Joe. So you're at the party, you met a girl, just Bobby just, Joe. Bobby yeah. Joe. And yeah. you're you don't want to go anywhere. You want to hang out with her. Yeah, that was the second time I had seen her. That was the first time we had ever spent like talking. Daniel says he and Larry were hanging out at the party when Larry said he had to go to New York that night. He wanted me to go with him. Uh, the purpose for him going to New York was he was supposed to take a vehicle up there that had uh, drugs stashed inside of the vehicle. That was something that he had probably did, I don't know how many times before, but it sounded like he was, you know, pretty used to doing it. Daniel says Larry was basically a mule, moving drugs up and down the I-95 corridor. And on this night, Daniel says he told Larry he didn't want anything to do with it. He just got out of prison, and he didn't want trouble. Plus, he says drugs were never his thing. I'm like, man, that's something I never accepted. You know, that was a decision I made before I got out of prison. I didn't want to get into that type of lifestyle. Um, when it was time to go, I kind of put it off like, man, I'm with this girl tonight. So, you know, I didn't leave with him. Several people at the party attest to this, that they saw Larry leave in the middle of the night while Daniel stayed behind on the couch with Bobby Joe. This is a critical moment in the case because at trial, Larry testified that he and Daniel left the party between 1 and 1.30 in the morning to find someone to rob. That's when Larry says they saw the Lexus and Jordan was killed. The defense only called one person, Kay's daughter, who could place Daniel somewhere else at the time of the murder. She testified she saw Daniel at the party after 1.30 and after Larry left alone. She also said that Larry came back around 4.30, at which point Daniel went with him. But her testimony wasn't very convincing. She hadn't said anything about any of this until a month before the trial, two and a half years after it happened. That called her credibility into question. Credibility is also why Kay and Daniel's mother never testified. Their relationship to Daniel makes them seem biased. This has since become a major issue in Daniel's appeals, and we'll get more into that later. But Kay does say she remembers Larry leaving the party by himself. So Daniel was smitten with a girl at the party, mm -hmm. and Larry left, and Daniel didn't want to go. 
Hey, he did, he, to know he didn't want to go. He wanted to stay and talk to her. How long was Larry gone? A while. He was gone a while. It's important to note Kay and Daniel's mother were in another room asleep for part of the time in question. It was late. The kids stayed up and the parents went to bed. So they can't account for exactly where Daniel was every minute of the night. But Kay does remember a commotion starting sometime in the early morning before dawn. She says she heard a noise outside and went to check it out. It was Larry. He'd come back looking for Daniel. When he come in the back door, uh, Daniel got up and was going around to where we were and Ann got up and went and met him in the hall and told him, boy, uh, you can't have company come into somebody else's house this time of night. And he says he wants me to go with him. And she, I do remember she asked him, go with you, go with him where? Daniel says Larry seemed scared. Something had happened and he wanted Daniel's help. He was just, you know, nervous, um, like he had been in a scuffle. He had like a um, sheet was kind of scratched up or, you know, reddish. He was just like, look, man, let's, he's like, man, I like you to go with me. I'm like, man, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, it's, it's, it's four something in the morning. And uh, my mom was coming in. She was, had been, I guess she fell asleep inside of the living room. So she heard us, you know, and came in and like, what's going on? Like, what y'all, Larry, like, what you doing? I thought you had left. You know, come in and either come in and go to sleep or leave. You can't be in the people's house making noise like that at this time of morning. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna go outside. So I went outside with him and we talked. Um, and I said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm leaving. So I told my mom, I said, mom, you know, I'll see you later, we're leaving. Daniel says they got into Larry's car and drove to the Quality Inn, which was less than 10 miles from Kay's house. On the way, Larry told him he got into an argument with a guy at the motel. Larry said he shot and killed the man. He said that when he met this guy that was supposed to have, you know, the drugs, that the guy basically said, listen, we here at, you know, at the hotel, do you party? Which back then, I guess that's like, you know, slang for getting high, like a cool way of saying smoking crack. So he's like, you know, he said the guy asked him to help him find some females, to help him find some girls. And uh, he's like, man, I'm not into nothing like that. And it evolved into an altercation. Daniel says Larry was amped up, full of adrenaline, as he told him about what happened. So it was hard to get a straight story from him. Daniel had to push him for details. He claimed the guy pulled a gun. He felt like it was self-defense. He said the guy, um, you know, specifically, he said that the guy um, pulled his shirt up and like he was going, maybe going for his gun or something, and he shot him. Daniel says when they arrived at the Quality Inn, he saw the Lexus parked nearby. He wasn't surprised it was a fancy car. At this point, based on what Larry had said, he thought it most likely belonged to a drug dealer. He went to the Lexus. I remember he grabbed a cup of coffee that was, I guess, inside a console of the car and threw that out. Daniel and Larry got into the Lexus and drove closer to the motel. There, Daniel says he saw a body lying in a ditch. It was dark and he couldn't really see much, just that it was a black man. Larry asked Daniel to help him move the body. Just don't pick the body up, um, put, it, put it on a quilt, fold it over, put it in the trunk. Uh, he had a rubber tie like with the S metal clamps on it 
and uh, tied like hooked one to the uh, to the car trunk and and pulled it down and then we got on the road. We got on uh, in, um, Highway 74. Picture this now. Daniel says it's early in the morning on July 23rd, 1993. The sun is about to rise. And Daniel and Larry, well, they've got a dead body in the trunk of a fancy sports car. The trunk won't close all the way, so the light stays on the whole time. Daniel says Larry told him he knew the best place to get rid of a body. Larry started driving. It turns out to be a swamp just over the South Carolina state line near the mobile home factory where Larry had worked. And it's at this point where Daniel and Larry's stories meet up again. At trial, Larry testified that they pulled the Lexus over on Pea Bridge above Gum Swamp. So how does, how does this happen? You just literally pull over? Just pull the body out? Yeah. yeah. I mean, pretty much he pulled back up to the, um, to the bridge um, and got out and yeah, just pulled the body out. Daniel says it was fast, uneventful. Moments later, they were back on the road. During this time, did you ever go, okay, we just dumped a body. I mean, was that going through your head at any point? Like, yeah, this I is mean, pretty well, scary. Well, see, the thing is, is that when, it, when I saw, like, that he had actually shot somebody and this man's body was here, like, right then and there, I'm not even really thinking. Like, I'm not thinking about consequences. I'm not thinking about, well, who is this? I'm just thinking, like, he's like, okay, look, we'll move his body. All right, let's go. So it's not even a thought. You just reacted. What Daniel says he didn't know and wouldn't learn for weeks is that the man they just dumped in the swamp was actually the father of his childhood hero. More after the break. I chose William Peace because of the personalized education it offers, which allows students to truly know their professors. It's really possible to make genuine connections with your professors and learn intentionally here and dive deep into what you're passionate about. A 12 to 1 student to faculty ratio is just one of the many reasons students choose William Peace University. Extra attention starts day one for career planning with their Career Services Center. Find out all they have to offer at peace.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After Daniel and Larry dumped James Jordan's body in the swamp, they spent three days riding around the area in his Lexus, making calls on the car phone and showing off for friends and girls. Daniel admits to his role in this part of the crime. What are you guilty of? Um, I'm guilt, guilty of, um, of helping him dispose of this man's body. I'm guilty of, you know, wearing his watch in his ring riding around his car, carrying. Basically accessory to, to 
accessory to murder after the fact. Accessory after the fact. Daniel knows how it all looks. Driving around in a dead person's Lexus, putting on his jewelry, even recording a rap video wearing it. But he says there are a few things you have to consider. For one, he says at this point, he had no idea the body he and Larry had dumped was Michael Jordan's father. I put the ring and the watch on because it had Michael Jordan's name on it. Not because I knew that it belonged to Michael Jordan. How, how could I know that? So when I put it on, it had nothing to do because I had no idea that Michael Jordan's father had been murdered. You understand? And I had no idea that this stuff belonged to Michael Jordan. I just put it on for the same reason that people stand in line for 20 hours to buy a pair of Jordans. He says he thought the ring and watch were just Michael Jordan's swag. He says he found them in the console of the car. He figured the guy who owned the Lexus was a big MJ fan, just like Daniel was. As for the car itself, Daniel says he thought it belonged to a drug dealer. He wasn't worried about being seen around town in it because who would call the police over a stolen drug car? I had no idea this was Michael Jordan's car associated with him or anything. That it's either it's like a rental car or it's a car that's stolen and it's clean and you can you know you can move drugs in it. You're oh. thinking this is the car that Larry was supposed to drive to New York right. with the drugs in it. Right. Okay. And then there's the rap video that investigators found in Daniel's mother's trailer, the one where he's seen wearing James Jordan's jewelry. For the prosecution, it seemed like a godsend. It was a character indictment against Daniel. It painted a vivid picture of who the state said he was. But the court thought the video went too far in prejudicing the jury against him. So before the trial, Presiding Judge Gregory Weeks ordered that the audio of Daniel rapping about shooting someone could not be played in court. Stills from the video, with Daniel wearing Jordan's watch and ring, were shown instead. And they played the jury a few minutes of the tape with the sound cut off. But during the trial, the full video was leaked to the media, who showed it over and over again, sound and all. Daniel says the lyrics in the video had nothing to do with James Jordan. I wasn't rapping anything about James Jordan, anything about, you know, this crime. Understand that rap is a, is a, is a style of music where you, you are, we use metaphors and you're boisterous and you, you know what I mean? It's that type of music. That's what I was doing. And then they say, oh, well, he's rapping about killing James Jordan. And they did that to sensationalize it, you know, to, to make it more graphic. I mean, do you regret making that video now that you see how it was received? I mean, I regret the, the way that it was, that, that it was misused. Um, if I was to, if, if I was say, okay, well, you regret, and what I regret is that I had on, you know, the property that belonged to somebody else, you know, which was an all-star ring, you know, um, and, a, and, and a watch that belonged to someone else. As we've said before, so much of the prosecution's case against Daniel was circumstantial, built on a series of events that could easily make a jury connect the dots between Daniel and the murder. But Daniel says, if you just tilt your head and look at those same circumstances from a different perspective, his perspective, it changes everything. The rap video is a perfect example because depending on how you look at it, 
you can either see Daniel as a remorseless killer bragging about what he's done, or a kid making rap videos in his living room, wearing Michael Jordan swag. I mean, why would you do that if you were really guilty of killing someone? And because Daniel didn't testify, his point of view, his story, never came out at trial. There's a lot about how the trial was handled that Daniel disagrees with, but he says not taking the stand might have been his biggest mistake of all. I wanted to testify, uh, and I thought, you know, all the way up until then I was going to testify. Daniel says his attorneys talked him out of it, and while they tried to present his side as best they could, this was a case of he said, he said. And as prosecutor Johnson Britt inappropriately reminded the jury, they never heard from Daniel himself, just through the interrogation tape where he lies to investigators and through what Larry said he did. But even if you believe Daniel's side of the story, there's still one big question. Why would Daniel help Larry dispose of a body? No matter whether he thought it was James Jordan or a drug dealer or anyone else, why did he do it? How could he do something so awful? I've asked Daniel this question many times. What I always expect him to say is, I was a dumb kid. I made a bad decision. I was stupid. But he won't go there. Instead, he says, you have to consider the mind of the person he was back then. My thing is, like, what was it in my thought process? You know, like, what was it that made me, um, like, go against things that I had been taught? Um, but then again, I know that at the same time, some of the other things I was taught, I did exactly what I was taught to do. I was taught to be a loyal friend. And Daniel says that night, the most important thing to him was helping Larry, his friend the guy who'd supported him and written him letters in prison. I didn't get involved uh, for money, uh, didn't get involved to hurt anybody. Um, I got involved to try to protect a friend. I know ultimately that my friend could maybe go to death row if I tell the truth. But no matter what his justification was at the time, Daniel says he can't escape that he did a very bad thing something he will forever regret. If you could say something to the Jordan family, I mean, what would you say to them? Um, you know, of course I'm sorry for my involvement in what I did, because of what I did, weeks happened, weeks that they did not know what happened. So, so you, you feel for the Jordan family? Yeah, I definitely, I feel for anybody that's, that's lost somebody, you know, that's lost somebody in a violent fashion, period. And you can probably understand why they just want it behind them. They don't really want to keep talking about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would understand that. Daniel's family, though, cannot put it behind them. Not now, not ever. On the next episode of Follow the Truth. I was sitting in the car listening to music. Foxy 99 said we need to interrupt with a special news something. I like went numb. It was like, and I, I must have started screaming or something. Daniel Green's mother and sister share their story for the very first time. I can still see them putting him in that car. I can still see him 
turning all the way around, looking back as they drove off with my child in that car. See, people think of Daniel like as a cold-blooded murderer. And Daniel was a geek, a bookworm, a nerd. This is not a one day. This is every day of my life, every day. Get the latest episode by following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Follow the Truth is written by me, Amanda Lamb, and Cliff Bumgartner. Cliff also produces the show. Shelley Leslie is our executive producer. The show is edited and mixed by Wilson Sayre. Our production manager is Anita Normanly. Original music by George Hodge and Lee Rosevear. Additional reporting by Clay Johnson, Jay Jennings, and the many other WRAL-TV journalists whose coverage you hear throughout the story. The show was represented by Melinda Morrisononi and Legacy Talent Entertainment with branding and digital marketing by Capital B Creative. Special thanks to Dave Beesing. Thanks for listening. So when I was looking to transfer, it was um, a lot of one-on-one, and it didn't feel like I got lost in a huge university because I knew that if I came here, there was going to be someone I could talk to about every aspect of the courses I needed to take, but also, too, I loved the smaller classroom sizes, and I liked how interactive and immersive all of the learning was going to be. It wasn't just going to be me sitting in a room with a couple hundred people and a professor who didn't know my name. To find out more about transferring to William Peace University, visit peace.edu. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.